Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Looking again further in this wonderful epistle from the Apostle Paul to the church, it's always important to remember as Christians and as the church where the source of our salvation is from, but also the cause for why we come together. The idea of individualistic Christianity, where it is up to me and God and me and God alone to live our church, our, my Christian life whenever I feel fit, is something that has crept into the church and has really distorted the truth of the gospel. And I think what Paul is writing to us today in Ephesians chapter 4 is another one of those passages that really reminds us that we are not Lone Ranger Christians, that we are not on our own power and our own desire in this Christian life. It is something that we become a part of when God saves us, when he forgives us of our sin, and he changes us into the image of Christ. We are changed into something that is communal. And that word communal means we are a part of something bigger. And that something bigger is something that is diverse, that is multifaceted, but somehow at the same time we're one. And that's a beautiful, beautiful design of God. Amen? It's a beautiful thing. So if you will, please stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning, I'm going to go back and begin in verse 1. Even though we looked at verses 1 through 3 last week, I want to read verses 1 through 7 in context. So let's read it all together. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Dear precious God, we do again stop at this point of our worship this morning to thank you for, the, for your word. It is through your word, dear God, that you have given us direction and foundation, and inspiration, and calling into the life of Christ. And so God, I pray this morning here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church that you would speak boldly at this moment. As we have sung praises to you, we pray that you've been pleased. As we have lived our lives this week with each other, I pray that we have done so in the image of Christ. I pray this morning, God, that you would remind us through your word what it means to be one. One Father, one Christ, one Lord, one Savior of all and in all. Speak to us boldly right now, Lord. Calm our spirits. Clear our minds. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. The Apostle Paul, remember, is writing to the churches in Ephesus uh, primarily to the Gentile Christians, encouraging them that they do not have to conform to 
the religious laws that, number one, they never learned in their customs and in their culture because they were not of the Jewish tradition. He reminds them this is not the important part of being a Christian. Do not fall into that false teaching. The only point that is important here is that Jesus Christ himself has called you to repentance. Jesus Christ has called you to the church and you are now made in his image. And that image transcends all religious law. doesn't mean that the religious law should be ignored. It's just that the religious law was not there to save you. It was there to point you to Christ to begin with. And he's reminding the church in Ephesus that the mystery of the gospel is that from the very foundation of the world, God had in store and in mind that not only would his chosen people Israel be redeemed, but all nations would be redeemed. Now that's an amazing thing. Without this truth, folks, everyone in this room, none of us would know Christ. How many of us were born in Israel? Anybody got some uh, Jewish history there in your bloodline? I don't think many of us do. And so without the truth of this gospel, none of us would understand Christ. We would not be a part of Christ's body today. It would have been something foreign to us. It would have been something that would have actually not been allowed had Christ not come to redeem the world. Everybody, regardless of who they are. So Paul here, continuing in chapter 4, the first three verses we looked at last week as he reminds the church to walk worthy in a manner of Christ with humility and gentleness and patience in that we begin to love one another and bear with each other's quirkiness. Is that a good way to put it? Do families have to deal with that at home, dealing with each other's quirks? Yeah, we have to. Otherwise, life is just miserable. We've got to figure out, you know what, if, if he doesn't pick up his socks, we have to love him anyway and somehow train him to do that. If she does not get somewhere on time, then we have to learn to have patience with our lovely wife and figure out, my wife gets everywhere on time. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. But this is a common thing in marriage counseling that, you know, one is always on time, the other one is always late. Is there quirkiness, is there patience there that we figure out? You know, each and every one of us, we have different ways of doing things. Some of us are very tidy and orderly. Some of us are just messy. Some of us love pizza, and some of us love Brussels sprouts, right? Some of us love soda pop and Cokes and all that kind of stuff, and others of us want, you know, that vegan, vegetarian something or other that's green, We all have different ways. Some of us like country music, and some of us like classical music. We all have different intricacies. We're all different. God makes us unique. God gives us different backgrounds, gives us us different customs and cultures, gives us different families. There's not a single family in this room that does the same thing the same way that the other families do. But for some reason, in God's divine wisdom, he figured out through the blood of Christ to unite us all. And that's a beautiful, beautiful witness. Amen? And so Paul here in this, these verses here, beginning in verses 4 through 7, 
He's reminding us, he's reminding the churches in Ephesus here, we have the Jewish Christians who have come to faith in Christ through the synagogues of Ephesus because that's where Paul started his ministries. Every time he went to a new location, he would always go to the synagogues first. He went to the people that God called to be his own first. Went to the synagogues and taught in the synagogues the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does so in Ephesus. We read this in Acts chapters 19 and 20, where when he goes there, he causes such a stir that they throw him in prison. <laughs> he causes such a stir that he had to leave the synagogues, and he just went down to the, to the local college. Really, that's the best way to describe it. It was the local university where free ideas were expressed openly, and that's where he started teaching the gospel. And he built a church through that. And so now he's reminding the churches here, yes, some of us are Jewish from tradition and culture and birth. Some of us are Gentile from tradition and culture and birth. But in this, God says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul here is reminding us that through Christ alone, Christ makes us of one accord, of one mind. This is what Philippians chapter 2 says. This is a recurring theme throughout Paul's epistles. All of his letters will touch on this one point, that no matter where you are from, you are not of God's original chosen people, but God has redeemed you to be part of his church as well. And he makes every one of us one in mind. He makes every one of us one in living together, one in calling together. Even though we all have different strengths and different calls of ministry and living, somehow all of that works to one primary goal, and that is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it together. Why is this important? It's because in this day of plurality in our culture where everyone is wanting to know or wanting to express their own identity and no one can tell my identity what my identity should be. How dare you come and tell me who I am? You don't know me. You don't know my language. You don't know my culture. You don't know my experiences. Everyone, this call for unity in our society is actually causing us to be more and more divided every single day because the focus is not on unity together through diversity. It's rather an individualistic expression because of diversity. We have to remember here that in Christ we are one. In verse 4, Paul says that we are one body in soul, one body in spirit. Paul here shows how the church is not complete until Christians are united. When we as individual Christians refuse to cooperate together, we are not fully in Christ. This is why it bothers me whenever I talk to people who refuse to come to church. They say, oh, I don't need to go to church. I, I, did, I did church at home on the internet. Or I did church at home in my own Bible study and reading. I don't need to come to church. That, that, that is so contrary to the gospel. That doesn't mean that if you don't come to church, somehow you're not saved. That's not the point. 
The point is, if you are saved, if you are in Christ, you will be a part of a local congregation of believers. You will. And Paul emphasizes this over and over and over again. Here in verse 4, when he... When he says there is one body and one spirit, he implies here that Christians are to be united. And this unity together forms one body and one soul called the church. It's impossible to walk this Christian life alone. It is impossible to just say, dear Lord, take me off somewhere and be a hermit on a mountaintop. And it's just you and me forever. You know, our church history is full of those kind of stories, especially back in the early centuries of the church. You had the monastic tradition, which there's a lot in the monastic tradition that I respect. There is a, there's a form of dedication to prayer and Bible study and community service together in the monastic tradition. And the earliest days of monasticism really formed communities together. It's something, there's some disciplines there that I think the church can really learn from as a church. But what Paul is showing here is that as Christians, we cannot be on a mountaintop alone. Because if we are Christians in that vein, we are actually not Christians. I think that's really, make, he makes that point very clear here in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. This body does not mean an individual flesh and bone body. This body he's talking about is the body of Christ called the church. We have to think about this in the context of how you and I are made up. Think about your, your makeup as a human being. Who are you? How do you know that you are a human being present at this moment? If you stop and ponder this, we, how many of us are sitting in chairs at the moment? Are you sitting in a chair in this building in Augusta, Tennessee right now? Do you have a physical presence in this space? I hope so. Some of us have more, we take up more presence than others. The little ones, the children are just these itty-bitty little things, and they're, they're, they, can go, they take up less space than some of us adults. We take up more space. But we have a physical presence, don't we? It, 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 does that not get, tell us that we are here? We have a physical reality? But is there also a part of us that is not physical? Is there, a, is there an aspect of your being that you cannot say, I know about myself because I am physical? Physical is part of it. We have a bodily form, but is there also the unseen spiritual side you know, our soul makes us who we are just as much as our body does. There are two parts to our makeup as human beings, and Paul's touching on this here in this example, in, the, in this text here between verses 4 through 7. He's actually using the, the fact that the human form is made up of two parts, body and soul, to become a complete human being. And he's combining this and showing this in unity with God himself and his Godhead, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the same way. You see, this unity that we have in Christ is not a partial coming together whenever it's convenient. It is because in Christ we are so connected in body and soul together that when one is gone, when one is missing, we feel incomplete. As Miss Geraldine Woolbright is not here, as some of our other dear friends in this church from time to time cannot be here, 
we notice that. And why is that? It's not because we're trying to make people feel guilty. It's because whenever someone in the body of Christ is, is not present, we do not feel complete. More importantly, when Jesus Christ himself is not present in the church, the church is very much incomplete. Not even a church at all when Christ is not there. And Paul's reminding the church here that there is one body and one spirit. And this calling that we are called to in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. This one body, one spirit, one hope is this calling to action, this calling to vocation in the church. And so this calling that we're called to in verse 4 is centered around this one body and this one spirit, this one hope as we are called to brotherly kindness in this, this brotherly kindness and service to one another, our vocation to one another in kindness eliminates the individuality of each member of the Christ body. When we are called to serve each other, suddenly we are no longer individuals focused on ourselves. When we are called to serve each other in the body of Christ, our vocation, our calling in Christ, now is for someone else. That's modeled after what Jesus did, remember? Jesus had every power and every right and every authority to avoid the cross if he wanted to. But he was called by God the Father for you and me. Jesus was called to sacrifice his desires for you. And that's the model that we have here in the church. Paul is showing here one body, one soul, one hope in the calling of Christ. Our calling is for someone else, other people, not myself. And that right there is totally contrary to what many people in the American churches are being taught, that Christianity is all about you. Gain your confidence this year in 2019. Come to church and learn your destiny. It's all about you. Man, we could build, you know, we could build a 2,000 member megachurch right here in all good Tennessee with that kind of message. Just come and fulfill your destiny. But what, think about that. What's the focus of that form of Christianity? That form of Christianity is all about me. I'm going to go there to benefit me. I'm going to go there to uplift me. Where is that? idea of calling and serving others outside of me in that message. Look here what Paul says here in verses 4 and 5. He says with all, um, sorry, he says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called. You were not called to yourself. You were called to one hope that belongs to your call. And what is that one call that you belong to? You belong to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are called into the Trinity here of God's gospel truth. You see, this unity means that our individuality disappears when we begin to serve each other as we are called to in the body of Christ. Suddenly our souls become united into one soul. Our bodies become united into one body because it's no longer about me individually. It's about us 
Amen? It's about Christ in us. It's not even just about Sovereign Grace Baptist Church as this place where we come and we benefit each other alone. It's this place where Christ is glorified because Christ is the calling that called us here. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, calls us all to repentance and to salvation in Jesus Christ so that we are then transformed individually into the mind and the likeness of Christ so that then collectively, communally, we become transformed into the mind and the body of Christ together. You following that? And so this unity is not partial. This unity is not, I will come whenever it's convenient for me. It's, I am so drawn to the body of Christ because Jesus is there. I am drawn to the body of Christ because I see Christ lived out amongst my family in the church. We are one body. We are one soul together. You know, it's one thing for bodies to be together in a space. But are they one if their souls are not unified? But think about it. If you go to a, a place like that, a venue of entertainment where everybody's there to get... You could have 100,000 people in Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee. 100,000 people, 100,000 bodies there, but are they one in spirit and soul? You could say, yes, they're all collectively there as Rocky Top sings, right? But are they really one? I don't think so. I mean, there's a facade there of unity around the sports team and around... You know, worshiping the, the, the wonderful orange tea, right? But what about being unified together as one? I don't know about you, but I, do you know those married couples where they just live together and it's just like this cooperation, it's like the marriage was a, license, a, a contract? You know those folks? I've seen some marriages like that, but what is a true good marriage? It's when two bodies unite together as their souls unite together. That's enough. I mean, we, the same thing in the church. What about all of us together? We're here physically, but are we here in one spirit? It's impossible to do that apart from Christ. If every one of us are united with Christ in body and spirit individually, then when we come together as the church, it will be the same. We will all be united in body and spirit to be the body and the spirit of Christ in this world. Amen? Now, what is this hope here in verse 4 that he talks about? Right? One body, one spirit, called to one hope. Now, see, this hope here that Paul talks about points to the one shared inheritance, this hope of eternity in Christ, this inheritance of eternal life that Christ promises the church. That's what we hope for. This hope of salvation leads to a hope of eternity in Christ. Christ invites everyone to be united in the same profession of faith. And see, this, this love of Christ, like we shared last week, is a two-part calling. Number one it is the calling to be that, that the, the love of the Father through the Son loves us enough to call us to repentance and we become one with Him spiritually 
in the vertical sense. But then the second part of that invitation and this hope is that we then begin to love each other horizontally. All of our neighbors, we begin to assist one another out of humility and sacrifice just as Christ did for us. And that's a hope that many people cling to. You see, Paul instructs here that none of us are fit for the inheritance. None of us are fit for this hope that we desire. But through Christ, we then have one body and one spirit in Him, and we are then and then alone fit for the inheritance that God gives us. None of us have hope here apart from the blood of Christ. And so Paul here is reminding the church in Ephesus, you are part of one body and one spirit in Christ. And through this one hope, we all shared the same hope. When it came to your point of salvation, how many of us had different salvation hopes? Boy, I hope Jesus saves me so that I can get my Mercedes next week. Boy, I hope Jesus saves me so my marriage doesn't fall apart next month. Boy, I hope Jesus saves me so my mama will quit nagging me. Anybody, you know some folks like that? They go shake the preacher's hand because mama has been poking them in the ribs all for all two months, right? No. A genuine salvation is that every single one of us had the same hope. And that was the hope of mercy. That hope of grace and forgiveness. One hope. That leads to repentance that leads to an inheritance in Christ. Now let's continue here in verse 5. In verse 4 we says, There is one hope and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, verse 5, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What does he mean here, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? I mean, clearly there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't have Jesus in our own image. None of us create Jesus in our own image if we are in Christ. Now, those who create Jesus in their own image, I would argue, are not focused on the one Lord. They're focused on, their, on, on perhaps their own selfish Lord or their own manufactured Lord. They're not focused on the one Lord. Is there one Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? Each and every one of us, Depend upon and bow before the one, one Lord. What does it mean to be Lord? First of all, Christ was appointed Lord by the Father. Well, what does that mean to be appointed Lord? The idea of Lord here, the word Lord implies some kind of a governing authority. We don't use that language much anymore in our modern day, but the idea of Lord is someone who has governing authority. I mean, I guess the closest we have here is if we rent from somebody, we have a land Lord. If you have a landlord, who controls the land that you live on? Or the apartment or the house? Ain't you? <laughs> I mean, there are certain legal parameters that give you some uh, uh, freedom there, but you don't have the freedom to decide what color to paint the walls without the landlord's permission. You don't have authority when the lord of the place where you live actually controls it. And so this idea of Lord, Jesus as one Lord, means that every one of us are governed by Jesus Christ as Lord if we are truly Christians and if we are truly a part of God's church. And so this idea where the church decides what the church is going to do and the church decides what we like and what we don't like, and somehow or another, oh, wait a minute, what does Christ want? 
That's a second thought. That's not the church. So Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus here that we all, in one body and one spirit, have one hope, and we are all under one Lord, and He, Jesus Christ, governs us. You see, Christians cannot be Christians without being subject to Christ unless we are of one mind. What does it mean to be subject to? This implies the same language of being Lord. If you have a Lord, you are the Lord's subject. You are subject to Him. In other words, you you must look to Christ for His direction and His authority and His governance. That's what this means. We all collectively in the body of Christ have one Lord that oversees our well-being, who oversees our spiritual calling, who oversees our lives. Not only do we have one Lord, we have what? One faith. We all trust the one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what faith means, right? To trust, to depend upon, to believe in. We all have one Lord, one faith. We all trust the same Savior. We do not trust ourselves. We do not trust our own manufactured salvation. We do not trust our own manufactured Christian church membership. We love and trust the one Lord. And one baptism. This idea of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The idea of baptism here is that as Christians, we all share communally the experience of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are baptized into one communal church body. All baptisms point to the same salvation. Nobody who is baptized in the name of Christ will sit there in the waters and say, well, here's what Jesus means to me. Whenever we perform baptism, as we are called by the Scriptures, we do not look to the person who's being baptized and say, okay, tell everybody what Jesus means to you. What's the language we use? We look at the candidate for baptism and we say, do you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you repent of your sins? Do you submit yourself to His Lordship? Everybody has the same experience. Because baptism is this profession of faith for all to hear and to all to see. It is something that does not save us. The act of baptism is not salvation, but it is a natural obligation and outflow of our salvation through Jesus Christ. We are baptized as a sign of submission to His Lordship and as a, as a witness to all around us that I am no longer in charge of my life. Jesus is. Amen? And wow, what does a church look like when everyone collectively has that same genuine experience of salvation and baptism? Wow. We all recognize none of us, none of us are in control here. It is Jesus Christ himself who is. Amen? One Lord, one one faith, one baptism. Now, it's interesting here. How many times does Paul repeat the word one here? He repeats the word one seven times. Now, here here is biblical hermeneutics 101. Anytime you're reading a passage of Scripture and something is repeated numerous times in a short text, what do you think the author is trying to get you to see? Whatever he's repeating. 
Paul is trying to get us to see here in, in this wonderful epistle, one, 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 one God, Father and Son and Savior of all. One. The repetition of one here means that Christ cannot be divided. What the repetition here means is that the body of Christ cannot be divided. The repetition of one here means that there is some strength here in unity as the body of Christ, as God through the Son has united us with him. Look at the very nature of of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. The very idea of Trinity, Trinitarian union, the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself in his very nature expresses diversity through the one unity of himself. I am, God says, And when he says, I am, he is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit, three in one. Likewise, here in the church, we are the same. All of our individual mindsets, all of our individual bodies, all of our individual experiences, all of our individual strengths and weaknesses, all unify as one under Christ. Doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same theological intellect of the scriptures. No. <laughs> we would have some folks that look at scripture and say, you know what, you may be high and mighty and intellectual, Dr. Owens, but you know what? Here's what I see, and Jesus just loves me. Wow, that is more profound than dissecting text grammatically and historically. Wow. Sometimes it's important for the simplest idea to be more pronounced than the most complicated idea. Sometimes it's important for those of us who are perhaps the weakest physically to remind the strongest physically, you know what? We matter too. Maybe it's also important for those who are spiritually weak to remind the spiritually strong, you know what? We depend on each other. Maybe it's also in the church we were reminded that every one of us have our strengths and our weaknesses, and it's not about us. It's about how do we use these abilities that God has given us, these gifts of the Spirit, for the edification of others. Here in verse 6, Paul closes out, this one God and Father of all. Now, as we looked uh, a few weeks back, Um, at the end of chapter 3 and into verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Paul talks about God the Father. And his implication here throughout this entire letter and throughout actually all of his epistles are whenever he responds or refers to God our Father or the Father of all, the implication here is always that this all is not everybody universally around the world. This is not universal salvation for everybody. This is the one God and Father of all of his church. Now, does God desire that all would come to repentance? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that all do. The only people who can call God Father are those who have been bought by the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. Then and only then do we even know what Father means in order to call him Father. 
I don't know about you, but whenever a little one who doesn't know me and just comes running up to me and all, he, all this little one sees are my knees, they think I'm their daddy and they come up to me and they say, Daddy, 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 and I look at them and then they look up and say, Oh, you're not my daddy. How many, we can't call God Father unless He has bought us with the blood of His Son. Then and only then do we know Him as Father. So this one God and Father of all is the Father of the church. This is the foundation of Paul's argument here. Verse 6 here actually summarizes everything that he's uh, said in verses 1 through 5. God, the one Father of all, is the foundation of Paul's point here. He says that above all and through all does not imply this universal salvation or this universal membership into God's family. And here's why. Because God's power, here's the theological term, God's omnipotence. You ever heard that big word? That means all-powerful. God has all the power to do anything he wants. God's omnipotence does uphold all of creation. God's omnipotence does uphold all of our existence. Do you realize that nobody breathes unless God's power is allowing that to happen? Whether you're saved or not saved, if, if, whether you're God's children or not God's children, whether you're a Christian or not God's Christians, everybody depends upon God's power just to exist. Because God has the authority and the power to snap his fingers and say, everything's done. Just as God created the world, children, are you not learning this in Sunday school right now? How does God create? He created all things out of what? Out of nothing. Who has the power to do that? God does. God created all things with a word. He could also end all things with the same word. So all things that exist, exist because of God's power. So if God does have power to uphold all of creation, everybody depends on him. But Paul here further implies that God's power for the church is above all other spiritual power. God himself is the one who's calling the church together. It is God himself who unites the church together. It is God himself, the one God and Father of all, that we all become members of his body, of Christ. You see, by the Spirit, God is sanctifying us, making us more and more Christ-like every single day that we're here, forming us and shaping us toward this ultimate point where God makes us who he wants us to be. And this happens when God pours himself out to us through the body of Christ. You know, God through his Son loves us, and God through his Son reveals himself to us. But you know, a lot of the times the way God does that is through each and every one of us serving together. How many of us heard the gospel just because we were sitting around meditating and thinking deep, deep thoughts on a hillside somewhere and suddenly we understood that Jesus Christ loved us. No, every one of us who knows Jesus Christ, we heard the gospel somewhere. Somebody preached the gospel to us either through a sermon or through loving us, through action. And so God unites us here. We become one God and Father of all through that. You know, this idea of unity here is nothing new. In John chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father. Remember, John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer for the church. Right before Jesus comes to crucifixion, 
Jesus is by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father. And Jesus in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John prays to the Father that all who God gives to Christ, and that's the language Jesus says, God, everyone that you've given to me, I pray that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is implying, I want the church to be one, Father, just as you and I, your son, are one. This idea of the Trinity here is exactly what Paul is pointing to. So what does this look like for us? Here in verse 7, he closes out this point. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace that is poured out to us through Jesus Christ is this grace that takes us out of our individuality and places us in a community with one another so that God himself is known and so that God himself is glorified. This unity that in the church is something that is a gift and is a, a very much a part of the grace that God has poured out upon us. I don't know about you, but you know, I remember those days before the Lord saved me where I was just this random, wild, do-whatever-I-want-to-do-because-I-didn't-know-any-better kind of person. How many people do you know are struggling right now with trying to figure out life? And everything they put their hand to somehow crumbles and falls apart. What if they stopped trying to perfect themselves and stopped trying to perfect their circumstances and stopped and listened for God's voice. Maybe God has placed us as Christians in their lives so that they would hear Him speak. Maybe if they're pouring out their troubles to you, that's a moment where we are to listen with love and compassion so that somehow they might hear us or see in our lives something that God wants them to see. doesn't mean that Christians are perfect, doesn't mean that Christians have all the answers, but you know what? Christians are loved by the one Lord and one Father and one Savior. And we have been given grace as Christ has given to us. You know what? This one body and one spirit, this one hope, one faith, is not something that is just for an elite. Now, there is, a, there is a clear biblical precedent of, of, the, of the called, right? Those who have been elected by God, the, the, the elect. That's a different sermon altogether, but that does not mean that no one else is welcome. does not mean that we have our own little social club here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church and no one else is welcome. That's what I love about this congregation. There's not a single person in this room who would look at a visitor and say, you're not welcome here. When somebody comes to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, are they going to see Christ in us? Are they going to feel so welcome that they are drawn to the gospel that they want to stay? Is that what we're going to do? I hope so. I see it in everybody. I know everybody here is just eager, <laughs> right? Please keep praying as we look for answers to 
what we can do in this community, how we are even able to, since we don't control the building, since we don't control our service times, we are limited by the landlord who has been very generous and very kind. The landlords here at this building have been so, so sacrificial to us. But we don't own the building. And so we, have, we, we cannot meet here any more than what we're allowed to. And so I think we're at a point in the church where we talked about this for a long time. What do we do next? How do we love the community so that everyone feels welcome? Not that we allow false teaching to come in. That's a different message altogether. But we want people who are searching for answers to come here and know the truth of the gospel by seeing a real, genuine Christian community. Are we one body and one spirit under one Lord and one Savior and one Father of all? Are we? I hope so.